0: Buddy, It's Ellen Weatherford
1: and Christian Weatherford,
0: and we're here with Just the Zoo of Us, your favorite animal review podcast, where we take your favorite animals and rate them out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics.
1: We are not zoological experts, but we do a lot of research and try our best to make sure we're presenting information from trustworthy sources.
0: We may not be zoological experts, but Christian's definitely an expert in making me a really nice cappuccino, which... You just did mere moments ago, and it's really tasty, and I appreciate you for that.
1: Oh, you're welcome. (laughs) I was panicking for a second that you were about to cite my um, ability to eat crab legs. Oh. (laughs) Because of my animal this week.
0: Well, I mean, you can reveal that about yourself as you'd like. I'm not going (laughs) to out you as a crab leg eater. (laughs) Before we do jump right into our animals for this week, I had just a couple of quick little follow-ups from the last couple episodes we've done, because folks have reached out with some very lovely responses. First of all, Mark and Jem on Twitter replied to our hedgehog episode with adorable trail cam footage of their very own hedgehog visitor to their garden, which I think is just so sweet. Because we talked about how like we never see wild hedgehogs where we live. And I'm not very familiar with the dynamic between people that live where hedgehogs are and, like, the hedgehogs that live there. Oh, yeah. It seemed like it was a very welcome visitor. Oh,
1: yeah. We were trying to figure out if they were destructive to the garden or not.
0: Yeah, they're not. They're little... Pest control cutie pies. Perfect. So Mark and Jen provided a really cute video of one crawling around their garden at night that I really liked. <laughs> and also last week we put up an episode on assassin bugs that got a lot of really nice responses. Y'all really liked hearing about these quirky bugs. One response was uh Dylan Simmons sent me an email and said that they found an assassin bug while listening to the episode. Which I think is really cool. Like, what a cool moment of destiny where you're like listening to a podcast about assassin bugs and poof, it materializes right in front of you. It was a warning. It was manifested is what (laughs) happened. It was a manifest. And also our friend Dalton Weeks said that he enrolled in the Bugs 101 Coursera course that Alon had a hand in developing that he mentioned during that episode. And uh, Dalton said that he had completed the first module of the course already and that it's really cool and highly recommend. So thank you all for not just listening to the podcast, but like letting us know how it like plays out in your life. I really, Mm -hmm. I get super excited to hear stuff like that. So thank you all. With that being said, Christian, it is your turn to go first this week. Okay. Christian, what's your animal?
1: This week, I'm talking about the Japanese spider crab. I'm so
0: excited about this. This is a cool guy.
1: Scientific name, Macrocyra compferi. This species was submitted by Vienna Sterling via email. Thank
0: Thank you, you, Vienna.
1: Yes. And I'll be getting my information from Animal Diversity Web, National Geographic, and... The Association of Zoos and Aquariums Japanese Spider Crab Care Manual.
0: (laughs) Okay. I mentioned this about you recently that you are the type of person who reads the manual. Yes. In every situation. (laughs) Like every time anybody like purchases furniture or an appliance or something like that, usually the manual is just like packing peanuts, basically, right? Like it immediately goes in the garbage. But Christian is. A manual
1: reader. There's important information.
0: There is! And how many times has it come in clutch for us? So many times.
1: <laughs> and now it turns out there are some manuals out there for some of the animals. And for those unaware, the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, also referred to as the AZA, we love going to AZA Zoos and yes. Aquariums.
0: Yeah. It's an important accrediting body to make sure that any sort of zoo or wildlife facility that you're going to is... They're minding their P's and Q's, basically. Yes. Um, make sure that they're really on their A game
1: and that covers a lot of different things like diet, habitat, enrichment, mm-hmm. having veterinary care, disaster planning, right. all that stuff.
0: But also like in order to be accredited by the AZA, you also have to like participate in a species survival plan mm-hmm. and like do actual conservation work that like extends beyond the facility. AZA accreditation is very difficult to achieve, but once it is achieved, then you you can kind of go to that facility with confidence.
1: Yep. So I stumbled upon this care manual kind of on accident. I didn't know this was a thing (laughs) that was publicly facing, at least.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Did you feel like you had accidentally wandered backstage at the concert?
1: (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it turns out they do, and they have them for a couple other species, and they also give a status on other ones they're working on that aren't yet available.
0: That's cool. You like to see transparency, I think. Yeah. It really helps with people who I think are maybe a little hesitant about zoos as a concept. Mm-hmm. Like, to know that there's transparency between, like, hey, these are the exact standards we hold our, like, animal care to.
1: Yeah. And I guess I thought outside of, the you know, that industry and things like in IT and such, accreditation bodies often don't make that kind of documentation publicly available. Like, oh. you have to have paid a membership or something mm-hmm. to get access to that sort of information. So, I was pleasantly surprised to see that.
0: It helps with public confidence, I yes. think. That's good. Yes.
1: So... The Japanese spider crab is referred to this, well, one, because it's located off the Pacific Ocean side of Japan, as opposed to not being on the other side, which is the Sea of Japan.
0: Oh, okay. That little bit between Japan and China?
1: Right. So on the other side is a little bit of Russia, China, North and South Korea, that area. It's on the Pacific side of Japan.
0: Okay. So they're between Japan and... California. Basically. I
1: guess. <laughs> I mean, but they're off the shore of Japan. Right. So they're called spider crabs because of the ratio of the size of their legs and their body. It's ridiculous. Yes. And, <laughs> and that difference only gets bigger as they grow.
0: They're incredibly leggy. Yes. Are they just when they grow are they just only growing in the legs? No, they're
1: they're also <laughs> growing in their body. It's just the legs are outpacing their body. <laughs> That's kind of
0: funny. <laughs> yeah.
1: So they're they're Body or their carapace is pear shaped. If you think from like nose to rear mm-hmm. as being a height, it is higher than it is wide. I see. I see. Yes. It has this like pointy rostrum between its eyes. Mm, like a little
0: rhinoceros mm-hmm. horn almost.
1: Kind of. It's made of two spikes, kind of. Oh. Yeah.
0: A binoceros.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> so there are other spider crabs out there that have this kind of. Feature, But what makes this one different is the size it reaches, specifically up to a leg span of 12 and a half feet.
0: That's so much.
1: Or 3.8 <laughs> meters.
0: That's a big crab. It is
1: very big. <laughs> and a weight of 42 pounds or 19 kilograms.
0: Is this the biggest crab?
1: It isn't only the biggest crab, it is the biggest living arthropod
0: wow okay so arthropod being the group that contains crustaceans Mm -hmm. but also contains arachnids and insects and stuff like that so think anything that wears its bones on the outside (laughs) now that is
1: based on size not weight because weight i believe um one of the lobsters found off the coast of the americas is the biggest in, in that category
0: sure but they're much more tanky i guess yeah yeah, They're more bulky. Mm-hmm. This guy's leggy. <laughs> They're taking up space.
1: Taxonomic family is an academic. Something I quickly learned <laughs> looking into this is uh, crustacean taxonomy is very complicated.
0: Let's not. <laughs> <laughs> I know isopods are in there somewhere. That's all I know about crustacean so, taxonomy.
1: Well, this species has also jumped around genuses in oh, really? the past hundred years or so. So its current genus, it is the only living species in that. Mm. One kind of crab that shares this family is called the hot lips spider crabs. (laughs) And those are found off the South African coast.
0: Hot lips spider (laughs) (laughs) crabs. So you were giggling about this to me last night, and I thought you were talking about this other creature called the red-lipped batfish. Oh, yeah. Which is just, I mean, look up a picture real quick, because this thing is... mm, (laughs) it's challenging to look at but because it has these like bright 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 red lips Mm. and apparently the hot lips spider crab has some sort of red markings around its lips that make it look like it just ate a whole bag of flaming hot cheetos (laughs) so i guess that's why they call it hot lips
1: (laughs) that reminds me i forgot to mention coloration so the spider crab it ranges from like a brown to an orange orange red color
0: okay that yeah. seems like a normal crab color.
1: Yes, for sure. Um, and it has uh, little bumps. There was a scientific name for those, like tubercles maybe. Oh. I remember having that classic, is this pronounced like Hercules? <laughs> <moments>. Tubercules?
0: <laughs> <laughs> you keep doing this. You can't keep getting away with this. I, it's
1: going to be there forever. <laughs> so jumping right into our first category of effectiveness, that describes physical attributes. The things that it has that makes it... Better at the things it's trying to do. Things built in. Right. Hardware.
0: Yes. Oh, yeah. Hard- we should start describing it as hardware and software. <laughs> that actually works really well.
1: Um, I'm giving a very modest 6 out of 10. What? <laughs> 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 I,
0: I can't believe you've done this.
1: So first, uh, you know, we have to talk about the legs. Yeah. It has very long 10 legs. So they're part of the group called Decapods which I believe is what that means. So like I mentioned, they're the largest living arthropod. In males, the legs with claws, also known as kilopeds, get really long. Mm. They actually become the longest legs. So they're actually longer than the legs it's using to walk with.
0: Uh oh, now you're off balance. That's not good.
1: It's it's very odd looking for very mature like individuals. Yeah, because they're they're huge. Yeah, and so they're normally kind of like if they're not actively picking up something, they're kind of like holding them up or <laughs> kind of folded in. Have
0: you ever? Do you know what I'm referring to when I say the neurodivergent crab
1: pose? Uh, no. <laughs>
0: Probably like six people currently know what I'm talking about, but it's where you kind of like squat and hold your arms out to the side with your arms bent like this. Okay. Nobody can see me, but you can. That's what it looks like to me.
1: This is all new information for me.
0: They do it on TikTok a lot. All right. I'll make sure to send you 800 TikToks about it tonight.
1: Great, great, great. great. <laughs> now, those claws are relatively weak. Oh. Yeah. Uh oh. So, I mean, it might hurt if it pinches you, but it's not going to tear off your flesh or anything.
0: So, what are they for, again?
1: Normally, their favorite things to eat are dead, like, organisms. Okay, so at least they they're don't scavengers. have scavengers.
0: Okay, so they don't have to kill something, right? They don't have
1: to. They will, though, if they can.
0: Okay. I mean, it sounds like they kind of can,
1: so. <laughs> I mean, smaller invertebrates, they can.
0: So, I mean, at least they're not trying to, like, wrangle with live prey
1: or something. Well... uh (laughs) Uh-oh. I'll talk more about that. Okay. So one of the problems is with those legs is they're prone to losing them.
0: Oh, no. And
1: that's because, one, they're very long, and also they're poorly jointed to the body. Really? Yes. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. So when these things are captured, it's very, very common for them to be missing one or more legs, either because they had lost it previously or just the act of being caught in a net huh separated some of its legs
0: do they grow back yes okay
1: and they kind of grow back with each molt
0: okay so at least they kind of have a contingency plan
1: yes but i don't think it's a one and done grow back thing it also (laughs) probably doesn't
0: feel good probably not
1: no (laughs) Uh, they are slow moving primarily walking along like substrate they can't swim like some crabs can
0: sure i mean they're kind of a little too leggy for that right they're not exactly buoyant
1: (laughs) yeah they don't have the little flippers They can climb rocks, but not vertical, smooth surfaces, uh, which is more of a consideration in aquariums.
0: Oh, true. Oh, yeah. yeah, I guess that's pretty easy to keep them contained, right? You don't have to worry about them climbing Mm -hmm. up the side or something.
1: Right. I mentioned molting, and I think this is an interesting part of their life cycle. From egg to larva to adult crab, they're doing their molting, where Mm -hmm. they're getting rid of their exoskeleton so that their body can get bigger and then a new exoskeleton hardens. So when they do get ready to molt, they stop eating for a few days. Okay. And their carapace splits at the back, kind (gasps) of hamburger style. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And then they can just kind of scoot out. Going oh. backwards out of their own shell gross <laughs>
0: were you able to find any videos of this Lots. happen? Oh. <laughs>
1: It's very interesting to watch.
0: Okay. Is it
1: is it creepy? A little bit, yeah. It's similar to watching a spider mold.
0: And that is that can be a little on the creepy side if that's the sort of thing that creeps you out.
1: Yeah. So it's it's backing out of its shelf through its rear. So it's like the back of its carapace is exiting first, then like Mm -hmm. the rest of its body, then its legs are the last thing to come out.
0: Imagine just like being able to unzip the back of your body and just like crab walk out of it. Right. (laughs)
1: Well, so this is not a quick process, unfortunately, because that process of getting out of the shell can take like an hour or two. Mm, poor yeah.
0: babies.
1: And, uh, of course, at that point, their new shell is very soft. So mm. this is probably one of the most vulnerable times in their life cycles. Right in terms of uh, predators and such.
0: And it sounds like a predator could just swim by and just yank one of those legs right off, like, free meal. <laughs> well, the whole
1: thing, honestly. I've, I watched a video of a stingray doing this.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: <laughs> and, like, it was there like in the earlier stages of the molting. It basically decided, you know what? This thing's doing the job for me. Oh. <laughs> I'll come back. <laughs> and once it was, like, halfway done, it was like, all right, great. And just... <laughs> It's like picking up uh, a DoorDash order. Basically. Ready to go. And that new shell, like we mentioned, is soft and then it hardens over about seven days.
0: So it does have kind of a window of mm-hmm. weakness.
1: And I've, I've read a little bit about other spider crabs, so particularly those found around Australia. Something they'll do is they'll come closer to shore into sh- shallower waters. And they'll, like, mass up together as they're molting. Really? To kind of go with a safety and numbers approach with That's it.
0: That's a good idea. Like, mask your vulnerability.
1: <laughs> Someone's getting eaten, but... You That's know. true.
0: You don't... It's like running from a bear. You don't have to be the fastest. You just have to not be the <laughs> slowest.
1: In this case, be at the bottom of the pile. Yeah. Issues during molting are the highest cited reason for captivity deaths.
0: Oh, no. Yes.
1: So... This can be a problem when maybe they don't have enough space or a different animal is bothering them in their exhibit. So, even if they bump up against a rock or a wall or something while trying to molt, that can cause problems for them. Really? Yeah.
0: Oh, that's sad.
1: Um, so, that could mean you know, losing limbs as part of the molting or dying.
0: It sounds like those limbs are just hanging on by a thread.
1: <laughs> it's not much. <laughs>
0: But you did say that they're decapods, so they have 10 of them, so they've kind of got legs to spare. I think
1: I read they could survive losing up to three, I think.
0: Oh, oh, okay. That's not that many. Yeah. Y'all got too many and too much.
1: (laughs) You went too hard
0: on the legs. You need to reallocate.
1: Yes. And like I mentioned, they get bigger with every molt, particularly their legs. So just making the problem (laughs) worse consecutively. (laughs) So that wraps up effectiveness.
0: That was harsh. Thanks. That's one of the harshest i think effectiveness ratings we've ever given
1: <laughs> yeah now here's a little bit better for ingenuity which going with the computer theme of software <laughs> or you know things that they do that are smart could be based in you know methodologies mm-hmm. or tactics that kind of thing
0: behaviors yes
1: i'm giving a seven out of ten
0: that's oh, <laughs> only just barely a little bit better <laughs> it's a crab
1: <laughs> <laughs> well now Uh, So first I wanted to talk about camouflage. They are part of a group called Decorator Crabs.
0: (gasps) They are? Yes. I've heard of Decorator Crabs. I didn't know that spider crabs were one of them. Yes. That is so cool.
1: Although it's mostly juveniles that do it. Okay. So the juveniles will attach living sponges and anemones to their shells to give themselves some uh, camouflage in their environment.
0: And the way they do it is so funny, too. Mm -hmm. They just pick it up right off the coral or, like, right (laughs) off the substrate or whatever. They just snip, snip, and then just, like, snap it right on their head. I
1: mean, they do kind of have to, like, rip it off whatever it's kind of mounted on. (laughs) (laughs) It's
0: like a Mr. Potato Crab. Yeah, you
1: live here now. So only the juveniles do this because the adults... Uh, one, are very large. Mm. <laughs> and then two, the depths that they live at, there aren't too many predators. So mm. their size and location already kind of gives them enough.
0: Oh, yeah. I don't think we mentioned, like, how deep do they live? Are they, like, deep, deep? I
1: forgot to write it down, but by memory, it was up to a couple hundred meters.
0: That's really deep. Yeah. So they're down in the dark, mm. basically.
1: Yeah their diet i kind of talked about this a little bit they are they are omnivores but they prefer to scavenge eating dead organisms they do sometimes eat living animals and plants and they've observed performing cannibalism in captivity okay so even like yanking off the leg of another individual and then eating it oh see your greatest weakness <laughs>
0: It's like uh, at the end of a video game sometimes where the final boss is like an evil version mm. of you. And like you have all the same moves and powers. Yeah. So you counter yourself.
1: It's rough. <laughs> so part of that care guide, by the way, i mentioned a good idea for molting individuals is to separate them from others.
0: That makes sense.
1: Um, not just other spider crabs, but maybe other animals that are in the, the exhibit. Uh, one way to do that is acrylic barriers so that they're still in the same body of water but there's like a clear barrier separating them from from others sure. while they're doing their molting mm-hmm. or moving them to a separate like tank
0: I'm just thinking about trying to, like, you have a 12-foot wide crab that you're like, all right, let me just get a backup tank, (laughs) another tank that I also have for my 12-foot crab.
1: And I just say, I learned a lot about what goes into those tank systems.
0: Oh, yeah? Yeah. Like, in in what way? So,
1: balancing, like, pH, nitrogen levels, ammonia
0: levels. When you get into saltwater tanks, it is a whole deal. It's a whole thing.
1: Temperature is a big one and also light levels.
0: I would imagine, especially for like an animal like this that typically lives deep, deep, deep in the ocean. It's
1: an interesting balance because you want to, you know, try to recreate the the light levels they're used to. But you also need enough light for your visitors to be able to see them. Right. So.
0: True. But also like too much light will cause too much algae to grow. Right. That will throw off your chemical balances. Mm -hmm. Yep. I do not envy whoever's job it is to maintain all that stuff.
1: And some of the stuff, they don't really have guidelines. Like, like, we don't really know what the best is. But mm. here's what people seem to be doing that are, that are working.
0: We've seen spider crabs in aquariums. Yes.
1: Um, I'm pretty sure the Florida Aquarium in Tampa and also the Georgia Aquarium in
0: Atlanta. Yeah. And I think there were these Japanese spider crabs.
1: I think so. Yeah.
0: They were pretty big. They weren't obviously 12 feet wide, mm-hmm. but they were pretty big. Yeah. And I can imagine we'll see some in Monterey when we go in yeah. later this summer.
1: That care guide has several contributors from zoos that have them. I saw one from Georgia Aquarium. Nice. I saw um, the Aquarium of the Pacific.
0: Mm, that's cool.
1: Yeah. Uh, in captivity, they react very strongly to novelty dietary options. Oh, boy. Yes. Who
0: doesn't love a little treat here and there?
1: <laughs> so this kind of counts as uh, enrichment. Yeah. Where they're being presented with things like algae, starfish, and gelatin. <laughs> <laughs> Happy crab sounds. <laughs> yeah. But what's interesting is they'll ignore it once offered again. <gasps>
0: What? The novelty has worn off? Yes. (laughs) So
1: it makes rotating the food options necessary.
0: Wow. That's (laughs) interesting. Because that suggests a decent amount of memory, Mm -hmm. right? That they're able to see be like, oh, yeah, I've seen this before. But also, like, it seems very endearing to me that they would be excited about something new, right? Like, I feel like that implies a curiosity
1: almost. Mm -hmm. Which just seemed like that was the primary way of doing enrichment for this species, Mm because like you can put rocks and things for it to climb, but that's not usually what it's what's in its environment. Right, it's usually just flat sand at the bottom, right?
0: Mm -hmm. But that's also not something it cares about you know like that's not even something that would register as something Mm -hmm. to be interested in for them so but i i find it very adorable i think like thinking about them getting a new snack and being excited because like (laughs) i too like we get a snack box delivered to us every month because (laughs) i have that exact same reaction of being like "Ooh, a new treat
1: right exactly
0: (laughs) it's very relatable
1: and then finally, our last category of aesthetics. This is just how interesting it looks. Mm-hmm. Could be cuteness, could be a cool factor of some sort, mm-hmm. or the opposite of those things.
0: Uh- <laughs> Let's hear it. I have no idea which way you're going to go with this I'm one. I'm giving
1: another modest six out of ten.
0: That's okay. That's not great, but I see it. Like yeah. I get what you. I get what you mean.
1: So they're bumpy. They got a pointy nose. They got that odd leg to body ratio. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to touch a little bit on the coloration thing. Uh, This comes up a lot in deep sea creatures where it's odd that we see something that is colored like a reddish color from the deep sea.
0: Right. Because you would think that living in the ocean, Mm. they would want to blend in. So you would think that they would want to be blue like the rest of the ocean.
1: And it's worth mentioning how color works with the light spectrum. So when you look at something that is red... That means the white light that is being shined on that thing, all of the colors in that white light are being absorbed except red. Mm-hmm. And the red is being reflected back into your eyes, which is what you're perceiving. So the thing about things that live at those depths is that most colors, particularly warm colors, do not reach that far down into the ocean.
0: Because they've already been absorbed by the water. Yes.
1: So when you see a picture of these crabs deep in the ocean, they look red. That's only because the vehicle they're using is shining white light that would otherwise not be there. Because if you didn't have that light, And you had the kind of sensitive eyes that could perceive things at that depth still using the small amount of light. Even being red to you would blend in with everything that's like black and brown and dark blue.
0: Mm -hmm. Because the red light has already been taken out of the white light as it passes through the ocean. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's very. That's why you see a lot of like red and orange creatures that live deep, deep, deep in the ocean. Where you, like even like squids, right? Like mm-hmm. vampire squid has this deep scarlet color. I think even giant squids are actually red. Like mm-hmm. if you if you do see one that is out of the depths, um, so it's kind of surprising. You would maybe expect to see more blue animals in right. the ocean, but there are actually a lot of red and orange creatures down there.
1: Mm-hmm. Last little bits about the crab. Their conservation status is not evaluated by the IUCN.
0: I think that's un- that's pretty common for like deep sea creatures, right? Mm. It's it's really difficult to get a hold on what's going on down there.
1: So this species is considered a delicacy in Japan where they are eaten. Sure. Either raw or grilled or that kind of thing.
0: I mean, they have so much leg. Yeah.
1: <laughs> that is like you get
0: one. That's like multiple meals worth. I, I don't eat crab legs, so I don't know what kind of meat is yielded from crab legs uh,
1: it's, it's a lot based on my experiences um if i ever find myself in japan i would probably take the opportunity
0: you wanna try some
1: yeah um now the harvesting of the species has decreased re- in recent decades restrictions were placed on fishing them during their mating season
0: mm, okay
1: yeah because during their mating season they come into shallower waters
0: oh okay so they're all kind of gathered close to shore mm,
1: relatively I mean, they're, right. they're still At the bottom. but That makes sense. So the way they're being caught is usually small trawling nets and that sort of thing.
0: That can have implications for other stuff in the water too. Big commercial fishing nets can catch more than they intend to. Mm -hmm. And then that can lead to some species in peril.
1: Yeah. So these things are definitely not being harvested at the scale of things like king crab or snow crab, um, which is the kind that we see in the United States, like in the grocery store and that sort of thing. Right. But it is a, enough of a delicacy to be caught every once in a while. Sure, yeah. I saw that some cultures in Japan make it a thing where they... uh take the carapace shell and then like paint it and decorate it and
0: stuff oh that's cool yeah. you know folks around here do that too mm-hmm. i feel like with any sort of you're just gonna see that in any kind of like coastal art right like yeah. crab shells and i do like the idea of like if you're already bringing in that animal to eat like make the most of it sure. right like use every part of it like yeah you if you're not going to be doing anything else with it use the carapace for art you know
1: what's funny is like you could find these shells from having a like a, a molted individual right right <laughs> oh yeah that's true could you
0: just be laying around you know yeah
1: yeah although it would be split apart already but
0: yeah were you gonna talk about reginald
1: i forgot to look into that
0: it's okay it's i'm sure not very many people know what i'm talking is it about low tier meme it is a low tier well i mean it depends <laughs> on what circles you run in is it mid
1: <laughs> it's mid yeah
0: <laughs> Many people are probably familiar with the Wednesday frog. It is Wednesday, my dudes, which is a caption laid over an image of a budget's frog. It's just a goofy looking frog. It says, it is Wednesday, my dudes. But the Wednesday frog became a menace <laughs> on the internet where every Wednesday, every post was the Wednesday frog. It mm-hmm. got super annoying. And that spawned a whole sort of like spinoff genre of like calendar-based memes (laughs) (laughs) one of them being reginald who is only here on alternating tuesdays Um, and reginald is a japanese spider crab you post him on alternating tuesdays
1: okay does everyone sync up that tuesday or i
0: don't think so okay This is pro, this might be something that's a meme that is endemic to the wild green memes Facebook group. (laughs) Um, but I think I've seen some bleed out. But if you, if you Google Reginald Spider Crab, you'll, you'll definitely see him. So, so he is a pop culture icon. Okay. That is the only pop cultural reference. You can't even call that pop cultural, but that is the only like thing I can bring in that's like, you may have seen the Japanese Mm. Spider Crab in this weird meme. (laughs)
1: That did jog my memory. There is a, like a, a local folk tale in Japan about these crabs. Oh, yeah? that yeah? They um, will drag sailors down into the ocean and eat them. Oh. They, they, they don't. They, they, they can't. I
0: was going to say, it sounds like they <laughs> couldn't if they tried. If they wanted to.
1: But we'll say, if they did come across the corpse of a human, they would definitely take advantage of that. Oh,
0: yeah. Who wouldn't? <laughs> you know? I bet this sounds like something you would probably see at a whale fall
1: oh yeah i bet
0: i love whale i think whale falls are the coolest Mm -hmm. thing so you probably see a couple of these uh hanging around there Mm -hmm. what a cool crab yeah i think this is maybe the first like proper crab we've actually talked about on the show yeah Um, so so this is the beginning of our carcinization era
1: there we go (laughs) new season
0: (laughs) very good thank you christian thank you let's take a quick break to hear from our friends on the maximum fun network and then we'll be right back with my animal
1: Hey, it's John Moe. Join me on Depresh Mode for conversations on how mental health shapes our life. This week, David Sedaris with stories of his late father that he's finally willing to tell. I think there's a difference between, you know, a good person and a good character. Like, he was a good character, my boyfriend here. And my father was another one of those people. He was a really good character. But he, he, he wasn't a good person. Depression Mode with John Moe, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Hi, I'm Jesse Thorne, the founder of Maximum Fun, and I have a special announcement. I'm no longer embarrassed by my brother, my brother and me. You know, for years, each new episode of this supposed advice show was a fresh insult, a depraved jumble of erection jokes, ghost humor, and Frankly, this is for the best, very little actionable advice. But now, as they enter their twilight years, I'm as surprised as anyone to admit that it's gotten kind of good. Justin, Travis, and Griffin's witticisms are more refined, like a humor column in a fancy magazine. And they hardly ever say bazinga anymore. So, after you've completely finished listening to every single one of all of our other shows, why not join the McElroy Brothers every week, for my brother, my brother and me.
1: So, enough about crabs. <laughs> I think. What is your species, Ellen? So,
0: so we are staying in the arthropod family. Okay. This is the Saharan silver ant. Oh, okay. Species name: Cataglyphus bombicina. The species was submitted by Jack Calabaza. And I'm getting my information from, first of all, the BBC nature documentary series Africa. Uh, The fifth episode of that series was called Sahara. And they had a really, really cool segment on this ant, which you can actually find on YouTube like Mm. I did. And then a bunch of other papers that I'm going to cite as they come up, because they contain spoilers in their titles,
1: (laughs) as they always do. All of them. It would be like if people started titling their movies with the, whatever the, like, climax. Like an exact
0: plot (laughs) synopsis of the movie in the title?
1: It's like Infinity War instead is now titled, The Thanos snaps half of the people away.
0: (laughs) That's a major spoiler.
1: It is. Maybe I shouldn't. For that movie that came out five years ago.
0: So yeah, this is the Saharan silver ant.
1: Question? What? You it? mentioned arthropods. Yes. Are ants arthropods?
0: They're insects, which are in the arthropod family. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Insects. Arachnids, crustaceans are in that.
1: For some reason I was thinking insects were outside of it. I was like, is this a fake ant? No, they're they're also arthropods. Okay, okay.
0: With arthropod, I believe that name broken down means jointed foot, Mm. and it has to do with like the joints in their legs. But basically arthropods are like any of those critters that have like that exoskeleton. You look for if it has an exoskeleton, it's probably an arthropod. Okay which is actually why people with shellfish allergies Mm -hmm. are likely to also be allergic to insects. Mm. Um, So there are warnings on any sort of like food products that contain insects that say like, don't eat this if you have a shellfish allergy, because a very common allergen in shellfish is actually this protein in their chitin Mm.
1: that is also
0: found in insects. So
1: interesting.
0: Yes. So if you are allergic to shellfish, be careful because you may be allergic to that protein that is also in insects. Hmm. So So this ant, as their name implies, they are found in sand dunes of the Sahara Desert, which Mm. is in northern Africa. Their taxonomic family is Formicidae, which is the ant family. They're estimated to be up to 22,000 species of ants. Yeah. Only about 13,000 of which have been identified. So we're only a little over what we think is halfway to finding all the ants, basically. Uh, If you want a zoomed out look at ants in general, go back. We have an episode a while back with Aaron Fairweather where we talked about ants. Mm -hmm. And it was just absolutely mind-blowing. But that one focused a little bit more generally on, like, everyday ants you'd see probably around, like, urban areas, basically. This is a very, very specific ant that I'm talking about today because it has some adaptations to living in the sahara desert that are mind-boggling i'm so excited about this so just to get right into effectiveness for this saharan silver ant uh i'm giving them a whopping 10 out of 10 wow, for
1: effectiveness. wow.
0: you know i love desert animals like you know i love looking into like how the different like tools that animals mm-hmm. have developed to surviving an incredibly hostile environment yeah the saharan silver ant is kind of unique in that they are one of the only animals that is out and active during the midday so the absolute peak of heat in the desert Hmm. the vast majority of other animals go underground and hide because it is too hot to exist So temperatures can reach as high as 158 degrees Fahrenheit, Mm -hmm. um, which is 70 degrees Celsius, which is just way too hot for most things to exist. The ants themselves, they will actually die if their like internal body temperature exceeds their maximum of 128 degrees or 53.6 degrees Celsius. So they can actually only survive out of their burrows in the midday heat for 10 minutes at a time. Oh. So they have... 10 minutes a day that they're outside of their colony. Okay. So, to survive this, like, super lethal heat, they put on a coat. Of? Hair.
1: What? Yes,
0: they have a coat. Which is not something you, I think, hear often from ants. No. Although, I mean, we've talked about like, you know, the velvet ant, which is actually a wasp, right. but it has, you know, this kind of coat of hair like structures on it. The silver part of their name refers to, so, so they have a shiny silver body, mm-hmm. but it's not like when you see like a metallic sort of beetle or wasp or something where that's just like their exoskeleton is metallic or shiny it's actually these silver hairs that cover their body mm. that have this sort of sheen to it and for a very specific reason because the hairs are the secret to their ability to tolerate the heat so first of all what's kind of weird about these hairs is that if you look at them under a microscope. In a cross section, they're triangular. Oh, like the tube of the hair is not round, like cylindrical, like our hair. Sure. it's triangle shaped. Huh. And what that's for is that the hairs they do two things: they reflect light from the sun. Oh, okay. So the light from the sun is bouncing off of the hairs and being reflected back out, getting that, like you said, the white light mm-hmm. that gets you know bounced off of their body. But it also helps heat get out of the ant's body. So it also emits heat letting the ant shed Hmm. the heat that's already in its body.
1: It's like heat sinks then.
0: Yeah, it's just like that. So this is because the hairs are like fine-tuned to reflect electromagnetic waves differently depending on where they fall in the spectrum.
1: Oh. So
0: the visible spectrum of light, which is like what's coming off of the sun, they're reflecting and bouncing off, but then the like infrared range that's coming from like the thermal heat in their body, they're passing Mm. so they're treating different ranges of light differently and based on what like where on the spectrum the light falls they have either reflective or anti-reflective properties. Neat. Which is absolutely wild. I'm sorry, I cannot explain any deeper than that, because I just don't understand the physics behind it. But if you do and you want to know more about this, um, see the research article where I got this information from, and the article is titled, Saharan Silver Ants Keep Cool by Combining Enhanced Optical Reflection and Radiative Heat Dissipation. And that is by Norman Nanshi et al. And that was in Science in June of 2015. Nice. Um, So, in addition to their spacesuit hair, like, it does (laughs) give them that sort of metallic, like, shiny spacesuit sort of look. Uh, They also have an interesting way that their bodies produce something called heat shock proteins. Hmm. Which are proteins that nearly every living organism on the Earth produces heat shock proteins. These are proteins that when other proteins in your cell are, like, falling apart, like, they've experienced damage, and they're starting to, like, become unfolded, basically, the heat shock proteins will kind of help stabilize the protein to keep it from breaking down, or they'll, you know, help a new protein that's being folded and help keep it together. In this case, this is when the damage caused by heat, but that can also be caused by extreme cold or any other sort of like stressful condition to the body. So like I said, almost every organism on the planet produces heat shock proteins, uh, and it's usually in response to a stress condition. So when your body starts to get really, really hot, that's when it starts to produce heat shock proteins. But the ants produce these proteins, even at low temperatures, even when they're inside their colony, just chilling, nothing's wrong, everything's okay, their body is already producing the heat shock proteins in anticipation Hmm. of the extreme heat they're going to experience when they leave their colony. Hmm. So they're like primed and ready to go, right? They're like living, being prepared to be baked alive (laughs) at all times. Um, And that research article was called Heat Shock Protein Synthesis and Thermotolerance in Cataglific an ant from the Sahara Desert, and that was by Walter Gehring et al. And that was in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in April of 1995. Awesome. Which was one month after I was born was when that paper went out. (laughs) So that's all to do with their heat tolerance, which is only half of what makes these ants so incredibly awesome. Oh, boy. The other thing, which was the reason that our submitter sent them in, is their speed. Oh. This is the fastest ant in the world.
1: We had to make up for the hedgehog.
0: We did have to make up for the hedgehog. They do (laughs) got to go fast, but they really do got to go fast because if they don't go fast, they will die in the heat. So it is imperative that they go fast. The highest speed ever documented for a Saharan silver ant was, and this is not going to sound impressive when I say it out loud, one meter per second or 2.2 miles per hour. That That doesn't sound like that much until you consider that they're an ant. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So <laughs> they are five to ten millimeters long. Mm-hmm. So they are traveling 108 times the length of their body per second. Right. Body lengths per second is kind of how you measure like the relative speed of something. Mm-hmm. Uh so for comparison, that would be like me, a five foot seven person, running six hundred and three feet per second, which is 184 meters. 603 feet. If I could move that fast in a second, mm-hmm. that would be me moving as fast as a silver ant.
1: I don't suppose you put that into miles per hour, did you?
0: No, I didn't put it in miles per hour. <laughs> Hold on.
1: 411 miles per hour.
0: <laughs> okay, so if I could run at 411 <laughs> miles per hour, that is how fast that would be. So this is one of the highest relative speeds of any animal in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, they're beat by the Australian tiger beetle, and the California coastal mite, which the coastal mite can clock in at 377 body lengths per second. So you're mostly going to see these like higher body lengths per second, you know, in little things that can be yeah, really quick.
1: It's the same thing with jumping, like relative jumping distances right? And
0: stuff. Yeah. I mean, the smaller you are, the farther yeah, you're going to be able to go. Because
1: that stuff doesn't scale. Right.
0: <laughs> and also for comparison to other ants, most ants walk at around 10 body lengths per second. Hmm. So like the typical ant you would probably see on the sidewalk is usually coasting at around 10 body lengths per second. Mm -hmm. Um, And then humans, by comparison, usually travel at about three to five body lengths per second. So, you know, larger animals, you're going to get much lower speeds. But even for an ant, they are incredibly fast. So they are just zipping and zooming all over the place. And I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about why that is. So compared to other ants in their genus, they actually have relatively short legs, Mm. which what this lets them do is run with very quick rapid fire steps. So naturally, like when your legs are shorter, you can move them faster. Like you can just do more steps per second, basically. This paper that I found that studied their how they're able to run so fast measured their stride frequency at about 40 hertz. I didn't know you could measure frequency of stuff just with that makes sense when I say it out loud. But I never thought about using hertz to describe like the frequency of things that are not just like sound waves. Right. So that's how quickly they're moving their feet. Also, something that's interesting about the way they walk is that when they're running like this, they use something called a tripod gate. So gate meaning like G-A-I-T. So, ants, like other insects, have six legs. Mm-hmm. And then when they're running, they divide their legs up into tripod groups. Yeah. So, they're using half of their legs at a time, where each step is three legs on the ground, three legs in the air. Oh. So, three legs down, three legs up. And it always is in this sort of zigzag pattern. Yeah.
1: Where yeah. they've got
0: like front and back on one side, middle on the other. Yes. So that lets them... It keeps them from tipping over, right, when they're mid-step, and it keeps them stable. But this ant in particular has just incredible synchronicity between their legs, like mm. mechanical precision, which lets them stay stable when they're running at really high speeds. And they also can just, like, move their feet in the blink of an
1: eye. So that that kind of describes that, that hertz or frequency a little bit better, because I was thinking, like, is that every one of its six legs? But that means if its, if its gait is like a 3 and 3 pattern, that means... Um, that's every three-step oh, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. happening at 40 hertz.
0: It actually... Think about, like, we only have the two legs, right. but we're still stepping, you know, one foot at a time. They're kind of doing the same thing. It's just instead of one foot at a time, it's three feet at a time. Yeah. They're not, like, doing one foot per step and having to rotate between all six feet. I guess
1: I was, th- I was thinking of it, like, as a, a, a horse walking.
0: Mm, sure. Because
1: that's not exactly... Like, they're, they're, they're four separate steps, but they're not, it's, they're not like, equally spaced out.
0: Right. right. Yeah. I see what you mean. But, yeah, so that's kind of how they're able to not only run that fast, but also, like, stay stable when they're going that fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and that research article was titled High-Speed Locomotion in the Saharan Silver Ant Cataglyphis Bombicina. And that was by Sarah Elizabeth Pfeffer et al., published in the Journal of Experimental Biology in October of 2019. So that is pretty recent stuff, actually. Mm. So that kind of sums things up for effectiveness. This ant is just doing what they're doing. They're doing great. Absolutely fantastic. For ingenuity for this ant, I'm also giving it a 10 out of 10. I think this is just a very incredibly clever ant. Because, first of all, the choice to be one of the only animals that is active in the Saharan midday sun. Yeah. So there's a reason they do that, right? This is like the most hostile time of day in one of the most hostile environments on the planet. The reason that they've adapted to such extreme heat is because the heat at that time of day will kill anything else that's out including lizards, mm. which are their primary predator. Okay. So they basically wait. They're like playing a game of chicken almost with the lizards. And as soon as the lizards get too hot and go underground to hide from the sun, that's when the ants come out. They're mm. like, okay, the coast is clear. They all come out. And what's interesting is that because the sun like kills everything that's out during that time, they're foraging for things that have died from the heat. Ah. So they go out and they look for like other bugs that have fallen to the ground because they had a heat stroke and died. Mm -hmm. So they're going out to find dead stuff that, you know, wasn't able to hang basically (laughs) because they're able to survive much higher temperatures than most other things are. But like I said, that window of time that they can leave their colony for is extremely narrow. They can only survive for like 10 minutes out of their burrow, and then they have to come back in. So they do some interesting things to kind of make up for that. Like, first of all, when they find a food source, they don't just sit there and eat it. They pick it up and bring it back to their colony, Mm. which sometimes involves working together. Where like multiple ants will find a food source, and they will all work together to pick it up and carry it back to the colony. Which in this video that I watched, in this BBC clip that I watched... They were trying to carry this larger bug. It looked like a fly or something. And they were having a hard time getting it back in time. Mm -hmm. So they started to use their mandibles to clip off the wings and the legs, which are like non-nutritious parts of the bug, basically. Mm -hmm. And they trimmed the fat, basically, to make it smaller. And then they were able to pick it up and carry it more quickly. Cool. Yeah. So they're really good at doing that. They're also incredible navigators. Mm. Um, they do this thing where they can like stand on top of a rock or a leaf or something and they spin in a circle to get like their bearings. Basically, they're tracking the position of the sun in the sky. And because they're able to like know exactly where the sun is, and they are able to keep track of how many steps they've taken, what direction they've been going in, they know the exact beeline the straight line back to their colony at any given point so if they're out and they're like i need to get back right away they can just turn around and sprint in a complete straight line back to their colony they do not need to like retrace their steps or anything like that Mm -hmm. um so they're incredible navigators and then of course like other social ants they do live in a colony which includes like a queen and the queen has wings so that she can like disperse and you know make new colonies and stuff like that and then the ants that are born into the colony have different body plans based on what their role in the colony is going to be.
1: It's just like the Ants
0: movie. It's just like the Ants movie. (laughs) Um, So, like, for instance, like, the soldiers will have these big, big, sharp mandibles. Mm -hmm, But then mm -hmm. there will also be ants whose job it is to more, like, maintain the colony. So they have different body structures. The queen is very different from all the other ants because she's big and has wings. So, like, I I have to tie that into, like, both effectiveness and ingenuity because their behavior is tied to their body shape. Right. But I just think that is really really interesting that like their entire body changes based on what their job is going to be and then they every ant knows exactly what their job is and they only do that job it's almost robotic really Mm -hmm. Um, so you know like individually one ant might not be Incredibly clever. But as a whole, the ant colony is, you know, incredibly intelligent. So I, I gotta give ants just math. They will even like warn each other if there's a threat, which I think is really cool. They mostly communicate with pheromones, but they will kind of have like watch out ants. Like they'll have lookout ants that will like let the other ants know if something's going on or Mm. something. So just, I love ant behavior. Ant behavior is absolutely off the chain, um, and this Saharan silver ant is no exception. Fascinating creature. Mm. Finally, aesthetics for the uh, Saharan silver ant. I am going to give them a 7 out of 10. It's a shiny ant. They really don't look terribly different from any other ant you might see. They're just shiny, which I think gives them a little... A little bit of a buff also like the fact that the the hairs are what's shiny means that they're not shiny from like all angles if you see one right. super close up it doesn't look that shiny it just looks like an ant that's a little fuzzy
1: i bet that has to do with the shape of the hair because it has you know flat sides from certain angles mm-hmm. whereas a, a cylindrical hair is doing the same reflection basically from any direction
0: yeah yeah. So they don't look super glamorous, I guess, mm. which was what I was kind of expecting when I like Google them. I was expecting a little more glamour and I yeah. didn't get that. So I was a little disappointed aesthetically.
1: Can I just say when you were describing that it had a coat of hair? I don't mm-hmm. know why, but my mind immediately went to the thought of having a separate coat of hair that like it puts on (laughs) (laughs) you gotta get judged up
0: right to make a grand appearance
1: have a tiny little coat rack in the front of their um tunnel
0: oh that everybody stops at as they're (laughs) on their way out that'd be so cute that is the saharan silver ant thanks i think they're really fascinating i can't believe that i had never heard of this thing sooner because it's really cool so thank you for sending sending that in jack that was really great yeah and thank you, dear listener, for spending this time with us today and learning about these cool arthropods with us. If you liked what you heard today, come hang out with us on social media. You know, we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, stuff like that. Uh, I've been streaming video games on Twitch, so that's been really fun. I try to always play animal-themed video games so that I can, like, talk about the animals in the game on the stream. But we also just kind of chill. Um, so that's a good time. Also, if you you know feel so inclined, you could leave us a good rating and review on your podcatcher. I just pulled this up. I wanted to thank listener Amelia, who left us a really kind review on Apple Podcasts, like literally just the other day. I just wanted to share this little bit from the review because this part of it made me so happy. Amelia said, I have noticed my critical thinking skills grow as I listen to this podcast. The show's format provides a solid study template for any new research subject. Christian and Ellen balance curiosity and discovery while simultaneously teaching adults and kids how to ask questions and ultimately how to learn.
1: Oh, that's awesome.
0: Isn't that so sweet? That was just part of the review, but that was part that really stood out to me so i really do make sure to you know read all of our reviews and they always make me happy and keep us motivated to you know keep going finally i'd also like to thank maximum fun for having us on their network with their other great shows um i've been trying to be more specific about my you know maximum fun shout outs at the end of the episode Mm -hmm. i have been listening to judge john hodgman uh, which is really very fun to listen to. It's always delightful. John, John Hodgman is so funny. And I know this pro- that probably comes out as a surprise to absolutely nobody because John Hodgman is an absolute icon. But I like that show. So if you like our show, go check that one out too. Last thing, thank you, Louis Zong, for our theme music, which is spectacular and perfect. Mm-hmm. And I think that's all for this week. We'll see you all next week. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Bye. Bye.